1744, the first golf club with a definite proof of origin was the company of gentlemen golfers who played of Leith, now called the Honourable Company of Edinburgh Golfers who play at Muirfield. It was that year when several gentlemen of honour, skillful in the ancient and healthful exercise of the golf, petitioned the Edinburgh City Council to donate a silver club for their annual competition on the Leith Links. The winner of the competition was declared captain of the golf for the year, and a silver ball with the date and the captain's name inscribed upon it was attached to the silver club. Thank you for listening to the Silver Club podcast. Here's your host, two-time Walker Cupper and former world amateur number one Steve Scott, and men's golf coach at Yale University and golf historian Colin Sheehan. All right, Colin, we are back for another Silver Club podcast, year number two in the new decade, 2020. How we doing? So thrilled. Thrilled to be with you. Ready for the Roaring Twenties? I'm ready. Fantastic. Yeah, right down the street here. We're, uh, we're actually in Toledo, Ohio, right down the street from the Great Inverness Club, where we had one of our Silver Club events this last year. We're having our annual team meeting up here and uh, just going through a lot of great things as, as the schedule goes through, looking back, looking forward. Uh, what, what's some of, the, some of the thoughts that you have on this last year and our first year in the Silver Club podcast, this episode 25 to be exact. So we've got 24 under our belt. And uh, looking forward, we're, uh, we've got a lot of great things going. Uh, Toledo is a golf town. Um, what I love is we are coming on, we are on the 100th anniversary of the famous 1920 U.S. Open at Inverness, where Varden was paired with a young 18-year-old Bobby Jones, where the professional golfers, I know you'll appreciate this, I know everything Silver Club is about amateur golf, but uh, we also love our professionals, uh, your fellow PGA, were for the first time ever were welcomed into the clubhouse in the 1920 U.S. Open. It was a shame it took that long, but that is a great milestone. And any visit to Inverness is not complete without a visit to see that famous grandfather clock and the poem etched in the uh, engraved on the in that a gift from the club uh, from the from the golf professionals to the club for their for the club's gracious hospitality of them. Wow, and, what a what a historical nugget that was. That is uh that's that's fantastic. <laughs> so one really cool thing we do every year for the uh banquet for the you know, after the Ivies we have a banquet at Maury's every year and uh it's the closest we come to um uh hazing I suppose, although there's no hazing in college athletics is the freshmen have to read a passage from a Herbert from a Herbert Warren Wind essay. It's you know, he was Yale class in 1937. Uh, second greatest golf writer of all time, greatest American golf writer. And uh, one year I had them read the, uh, the freshmen had to read uh, the passages from Varden at Inverness, one of the most beautiful essays about a U.S. Open ever. Uh, I encourage anyone to go and check it out. And, and Harry Varden, late in his career, sitting on, you know, late, he's, he's going to win the tournament. He's got nine holes to go and a storm comes off Lake Erie and he crashes and burns and loses by a few. Uh, and it was heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to read, but uh, it's always a joy. I guess that would be considered hazing at Yale, though. Maybe <laughs> studying too much or reading too much. I mean, you got to use your brain a lot when you go to school. You there. wouldn't believe how terrified somebody is these days, especially an eighteen-year-old kid, to stand up and actually have to read to about fifteen or twenty other people. Yeah, it's, so a, it's, it's a that's the closest thing to a public torture as it gets these days. <laughs> well, well, just uh, as as we're here in in Ohio, looking back on on the great year that we had in, in the Silver Club this last year, and our podcast specifically, what were some of your favorite, couple of your favorite podcasts from the year, just looking back? I know I've got a couple, but what were yours? 
So I I loved you did a great job. I loved so many of them, but I we 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 worked we worked we worked at it, and it was fun. Honestly, I don't think any interview was more honest and raw than Bill Harmon. Uh, I, I was I was touched by his sincerity, his forthcoming, the way he. I, I admire anyone who has the ability to sort of ch- turn their turn their direction of their lives around, and uh, I, I listened to that. I was I was riveted to that interview, and I you know, and one thing I really appreciate, Steve, is in listening to all of them, is the um, the the respect and appreciation the inter- the, the subjects you were interviewing uh, give to you, and I and I think there's something compelling about someone who was a Walker Cupper and a and a former number one amateur player in the world, someone like yourself to when you're when you're asking them the questions, you're getting their absolute best answers. Yeah, I, I agree. And I really and I and I think that's one of the one of the best aspects of, of, of every interview subject. There's not a single person you interviewed whose credentials Whose credentials, you know, in any dramatic way, ex- succeed, exceeded yours? And so. uh, well, that, that's nice of you to say, but I think you're right. I think the, the Bill Harmon episode specifically, and how many things that he he's uh, gone through through his life, from you know, drug rehabilitation. He survived cancer. He's a cancer survivor the last few years. Obviously, from a, a you know, the one of the greatest, if not the greatest, teaching family of all time. Certainly, that was probably one of the most riveting episodes. I, I would certainly have to say. How about yourself? Uh, I, that would be one. Uh, Vinny Giles, even though I'm a Florida Gator, I love Vinny Giles. He's a great guy. Uh, uh, founder of Kinlock Golf Club, host of the Senior Amateur this upcoming year as well. And Vinny's just a, a great storyteller. He's got a voice that. It's almost like one of the coolest cartoon characters out there, and he's got so many jokes and just fun, uh, amazing stories. And uh, I love Vinny. Vinny's a great guy. Vinny was someone when I was researching the U.S. Amateur book in 2004 and 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 tracking them all down. Uh, he had the most compelling story. Uh, you know the the idea that he was three times the runner up, and that he almost had given up on the idea that he was a viable. It was in his late twenties. And I love that. He is the ultimate career amateur, you know, sort of 20-something mid-am before there was a category as such. Uh, It's almost impossible to imagine someone these days being a a lawyer by day, uh, having had all those close calls, all that scar tissue. Yeah, to be able to overcome it. And then coming around and do it, you know, do it when he did. And so uh, I have so much respect for, I have so much respect for Vinnie Giles. And, you know, the thing, I think the theme of, of the whole podcast, all the subjects, why I love it is that every single one of them is just is so passionate. There's you're, you you don't get they don't get an invitation from you unless there's someone who's so dyed in the wool about golf, the, the current mid amateur champion, yep. or, and they are and they speak about the game in such an affectionate way where it's it doesn't it it's it's who they are. It's every it's our identity. It's so and uh, I I could I could always spend time with people who. Love the game in that way because I feel like that's similar to how I feel about it. Yeah, that, that's one of the things that we try to do at the whether it's our society, whether it's our podcast, whatever it is, we try to connect the listener, the competitor to the fabric of this great game that we all love, and it's just it's just one of those uh, one of those things that that is the sticky part of golf, if you will. Now you talked a little bit about people who who performed and were were great uh, performers on the golf course. Uh, just got to quickly highlight before. Before we get into our podcast today, we've got to highlight a few of our players who uh, did some great things on the course last year in our society. Starting right at the top would be Lawrence Largent from Kingsport, Tennessee. 
was our captain of the golf, is our captain of the golf for 2019. He, uh, he was the, our, it was our championship points earner, uh, leader for 2019. And so uh, he, will, he will carry that. He'll have his name etched on one of our golf balls onto our silver club. And Steve, uh, I, by the way, I, you know, not to get too historically golf nerdy here, but I, I think, is that the only golf society or club in America that has a merit-based sort of uh, system for acknowledging a captain, like a winner of the, you know, club champion may get a parking spot at a lot of places, but they don't get to be the sort of captain. Or, and I love that, true to the original origin of the game, this idea that you're the best golfer, the undisputed best golfer, you yeah. you are entitled to the sort of the top position in the club. Lawrence not only, for sure, and, and Lawrence not only had a great year with us at the Silver Club, he played in some national qualifying events, he just missed out, unfortunately, in qualifying for the U.S. Amateur. But within that qualifying round at the Ohio State Scarlet course, he made a hole-in-one in the process, I believe, on the 13th hole out there. So uh, congratulations, Lawrence, on your great year and looking forward, I'm sure, for defending your captain of the golf title. Uh, Brent, We're coming for him. Yeah, for him. Uh, there's going to be a lot of them because we've got a lot of members coming on board. They're going to be coming for him. So I'm sure he's practicing up. I uh, also have to give a shout out to two others. Brent Landry, who played in the U.S. Mid-Amateur this last year at Colorado Golf Club, which incidentally will be a venue for uh, one of our tournaments this year in the, in the uh, SCGS. So uh, congratulations, Brent. He won the Silver Club Championship at the end of the year and also won one of our uh, one days in uh, Chicago at Conway Farm. So uh, Brent did a great job there. He's from uh, Atlanta, Georgia, Roswell to be exact. And then finally, Brian Katrick, who was, uh, he played in a couple events. He's the, the great uh, golf broadcaster, does a lot of work on Sirius XM, has a show on uh, with John McGinnis in the evenings there on Sirius XM, Katrick and McGinnis on tap. He won the, our, we had a great uh, Dunhill Lynx Championship uh, we, it was kind of like a drawing. It was a chip off that we did. If you haven't, if our listeners haven't seen it, hop on our Instagram page and check out. We did a live Instagram for about seven, eight minutes, and I did a chip off and uh, kind of a blind chip off, if you will. And Katrick, uh, his golf ball ended up to be the closest, and so Brian, he's going to end up winning a, uh, a trip of a lifetime for two over to the Dunhill Links Championship to be part of their whole VIP gala. Thanks to our friends at Dunhill, really for putting together such a magnificent prize for one of our lucky participants this year. It's a stunning opportunity. Uh, I was just saying I, I had the fortune to be there. I didn't compete in it, but I was there in 2003. And you get it's a, the sort of uh, an opportunity to play the old course, Carnoustie, Kings Barnes. And if you make the cut, you play one of the sort of greatest and rarest privileges in all of golf is play the old course not many not many times that that's the case and it's a it's sort of the european tours equivalent of the the pebble beach pro-am and there's all sorts of cool celebrities and if you're an american you have to figure out why they're making such a big deal about someone who you know races a formula one car and or kicks a soccer ball and things like that but uh i i do i, I very quickly i wanted to give a uh, the reason I was there back in 2003 was I I was I became connected with uh, the American from Mark Parsonen who uh, helped uh, was the driving force and developer behind Kings Barnes and uh, not many people had uh, second acts in their lives like this he was supremely talented super smart guy uh, made a sort of had a successful career as a consultant 
And then in his sort of early retirement in his 40s, he took an interest in golf in the Granite Bay, Sacramento area of California, and he helped get the Granite Bay Golf Club off the ground. And then it led to an opportunity to develop Kings Barns and, and eventually led to the opportunity to do Castle Stewart. This guy basically developed three courses, two of which are in the top 100 in the world. It's not a bad ratio. Uh, sadly, not long after his 70th birthday this summer, he, he passed away. But one of the most intelligent people I've ever been around, a, a sort of a mentor to me. Uh, I love I loved him and his, his, his wife, Didi, and his whole family. And uh, he, he offered me an opportunity to be an intern on his Castle Stewart project uh, about 16 years ago and uh, spent 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 a bunch of time in 2006 and seven over there involved in that project and uh uh he he believed in every he was a typical uh american who loved golf in scotland so much that he went over there and he just he he saw the contrast with the american game in a way that's almost impossible to appreciate if you've grown up over there and he celebrated every aspect of it and uh he, he leaves behind um two courses in in Scotland, Kings Barnes and Castle Stewart, which share a lot in common, but uh, I think people, one, one thing that people uh, can appreciate is is in in some ways uh, Castle Stewart uh, reflects an evolution from from Kings Barnes to the next, and they're they're both stunning and loved by golfers. And he was a huge proponent of Mackenzie. Uh, you know, he was and he helped. He was instrumental in helping Gill and Jim Wagner. Gil Hanson, Jim Wagner along, and that was a springboard for their careers. And uh, I, I just want to I just want to give a shout out to him on this podcast. Right. No, I, I think that that's the greatest thing about des- being a, a course designer uh, from the greats of Tillinghast all the way to now to Gil Hans through Mark Parson and et cetera, et cetera. But it, it's the it's the lasting legacy that people like that get to get to carry on and, and share with they they're able not only not only in this great game do we get to play golf with our friends and our family and you know just people that we love and respect but we get to play golf courses really for forever as long as they stay they stay out there and and in the in the world that we're able to get out there and and enjoy the the fruits of their labor many 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 times over and and speaking of that speaking of people who have had some major longevity and and a legacy in their career is our next guest on our podcast today, Mr. Bob Toski. I, I learned from Bob way back, uh, starting in 2003, when I was a, a fledgling tour player, started on the nationwide tour, and uh, Bob taught me really a, an infectious way to to learn the game. And uh, so we're we're looking forward to listening to Steve this I, podcast right uh, now. So you did, you did a great job. I loved I loved listening to it. Uh, he is such an old school teacher. Um, you know the thing among the many things I was reminded of is the uh, generosity of of golf professionals to others. Um, you're not ju- it's not a lesson. You're sharing instruction. It's like you, it's it's teaching in the best possible sense. My mother was a middle school English teacher for forty one years, and she never thought of it as a job. And and I thought about all the times because you guys talked about how he he was giving you lessons for free. Yeah. And I th- and and it and it and it, and it, it I was flooded with memories of Mike Downey when I was 14 years old, you know, caddying, working in the bag room, or just a kid, and how 
those real deal, true club professionals, golf professionals, they can't stop themselves from giving instruction. And they don't, they're not going to, they're not going to start, they're not lawyers. They don't start, they don't sort of start the timer once the lesson begins. And I, I thought of the million times that I was just given a free lesson just on the spot for five seconds. A, a, a true golf pro cannot watch a golf, another golfer make one swing with, a, with, a, with errors in their fundamentals without correcting them. Like they can't even walk by that person on the range. And, and that's what I felt about Bob Toski and, and, and sort of a, as an example of all the club professionals, Brendan Walsh, all the ones I've, I've known in my life and been fortunate to be around and being the recipient where they, it's almost, it's in their DNA to sort of, they can't stop, they can't stop teaching. And it's, and, and you only keep getting better with age. And uh, so I, 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 listeners are going to enjoy it. Uh, you did a wonderful job. He's, he's, uh, he's still feisty. He's fantastic. All right. But before we get to this great Silver Club podcast with Bob Toski, I just wanted to tell you really quickly about the Silver Club Golfing Society. We had a great first year and our 2020 schedule is now out and we've got some of the most noteworthy and architecturally significant courses in the country on the docket this year. From Oak Hill in Rochester to Setting Down Creek in Atlanta, Trinity Forest near Dallas, and even the great Colorado Golf Club that played host to the 2019 U.S. Mid-Amateur Championship. These are major championship venues to test your game, and you can hit shots that matter on these wonderful venues. Our membership is growing leaps and bounds, so now's the time to check out our website at silverclubgs.com and look at us on social media at Silver Club Golf on Instagram and Twitter, and we're on Facebook too. Don't forget to follow us, like us, retweet, all that great stuff. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our ever-growing Silver Club podcast today and listen to all of our great podcasts from last year. We've had guests like the great teaching minds of Bill Harmon or Boyd Summerhays to the characters in the game like Vinnie Giles or Jason Gore. We've just had a ton of fun connecting you to the greatest people that make up the fabric of our wonderful game. Okay, now let's get inside the great coaching mind of the legendary Bob Toski, who is 93 years young this year. Take note, I recorded this just over a month ago after Thanksgiving and wanted to kick off this new decade the right way. Enjoy the listen. Good morning, Steve. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? <laughs> Absolutely did. I hope you did as well. Yes. It was, it was expensive, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things you told me, the very first lesson that we ever had, you always said, I don't need your money, I'm rich. You're rich in friends as well. Uh, well, if you're, if you're rich in heart, which is more important than money, it has to come from the heart. <laughs> and I, I love teaching and I didn't need the money. So when I met you and changed your grip and helped you to understand how to become a better player and teacher... You know, give and you shall receive, and and that's the story of my life. It's been one one heck of a life. You have to definitely reference that first lesson that I ever had with you. Obviously, I'd seen you in instruction articles. You were all over Golf Digest for many, many, many years. But the first lesson I ever had with you, I was struggling with my game as a player on the well now what's called the Corn Ferry Tour. It was called the Nationwide Tour back then. I had a, had a rough year, and I, I came to you, and one of the first questions you ever asked me was, how is your marriage? 
And I thought that was really interesting for it. I never had an, a, an instructor ask me that question. To kind of move on towards the end of that lesson, I learned a whole bunch of things and learned how to aim better and get my, get my grip a little bit more neutral. And, and when I asked at the end of the lesson, I said, I said, Bob, how much money do I owe you? You got up close to me like you, you do. You're, you're a very good close talker. And you said, yeah, Steve, <laughs> so you said, Steve, I'm rich. I don't need your money. All I want you to do is go out there and kick ass. Where did that philosophy <laughs> of not taking money from professional golfers come from? Well, Steve, my brother Jack said, my oldest brother said, how many people have helped you and, and not received any money from you? I said, Jack, I can't count the number of pros on the tour. Demerit, Snee, Mangrum, Middlecoff, Ted Kroll that gave me instruction and never asked me for a dime. Uh, and so now it's my turn to put something back into the game. And Jack said, if you're going to teach and you're going to afford not to get paid, he said, you should do that. That came from my oldest brother. So I was trained well. <laughs> your brothers, you had several of them. They were very influential in your life that way, right? Yeah, there was Benny. Jack was the oldest, and then Benny, and then Tommy, and then me. I was the youngest of the four, and I saw how well they couldn't compete. They tried to try to compete, and they they didn't have the uh, I would call the mental strength to control their physical uh, uh, attitude or the physical uh, awareness of how to play golf. And my sisters always used to say, well, what makes you think you're going to succeed if all your other brothers fail? I said, I learned a lesson watching them fail, so I know now what it takes to succeed. <laughs> <laughs> you had uh, a very interesting and, and really kind of difficult childhood growing up. You know, we talk about your brothers and how influential that they were. You you unfortunately lost your mother when you were six years old, and well, she died at childbirth. She died bearing her tenth child, and both the child was born dead, and she died having that child. And we at that time, uh, Tommy and I was I was six, Tommy was seven, and to relieve some of the conditions at home because there were nine children. Uh, Jack was the assistant at Northampton Country Club, and Al Porter and many Porter said, "Why don't you bring Bobby Day, where they they practically own the the club?" And they said, "Bring Bobby and Tommy down. We'll put them up in the attic in the summertime." And Jack, so we went down there in the summertime, and Jack cut down a six iron and a putter for me. And he, he said, uh, "There's a putting green out there. There was no bunkers." just a putting green. And he says, all you're going to do is chip and putt, chip and putt. I said, am I ever going to hit him? He said, no. All you're going to do is, all you're going to do is chip and putt. Now, I used to aim left when I putted, and I'd push the ball in the hole, and I'd make everything. And Jack said, I've got a, my brother Bob will play anybody for nine holes, and he didn't tell me he was betting $50 on me. <laughs> That's a lot of money. Right. And I, I never lost a match. And I pushed everything in the hole. And Jack didn't change that. But he said, someday you're going to learn to aim straight if you have a straight putt. And I had a hell of a time 
trying to aim straight because I was my eyes and my hands always wanted to aim left. It was a push putter. It's like aiming right and then pulling it in. Right, and right. He said, Something, he said, someday you're going to learn how to aim with your eyes and trust your hands and club it to run the ball straight in the hole. Because he said the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. That that uh, that that's just too simple, isn't it? Right. Uh, <laughs> well, what he what he said was, you got to learn to crawl before you walk, walk before you run. And he said, you're not going to hit a driver until I think you're strong enough and old enough. Mm-hmm. But you know, today they can't wait to put the driver in the hand first. Well, let me ask you this question, Steve. Sure. Is it a game of distance and direction? Absolutely. Well, which comes first? The modern teachers would say they distance would come first. Well, what you have to do is learn what I did. I had golf schools, and 95% of my golfers were hackers. They were at poor hand-eye coordination, and they weren't athletes. Am I going to teach them to putt and chip first, or am I going to teach them to hit a driver first? Putt and chip. Learn to crawl before you walk. Learn to walk before you run. What do you, The golfers today... When they practice, they can't wait to get to the first tee, so they practice incorrectly, and they prepare themselves for disaster, and my job is to prepare them for success. So my methodology was, if you can't control the ball with a driver, let's start with a putter and see if you can hit, strike the ball square and make it go in a hole. And when you see the ball go in a hole, what does that do to your confidence? It makes it grow. Isn't that what the game is all about, putting the ball in the hole? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I, yeah, you'd have to say that your, your upbringing at Northampton Country Club really led you to understand that part of the game and how important that was. And, and, and I have to mention to our Silver Club podcast listeners that you didn't just start any golf school or be involved with any golf school. You were, you were leading the Golf Digest schools, and uh, you and Jim Flick, and talk, talk about creating these these schools for the masses or the, the hackers that you uh, that you affectionately uh, refer to them as. Just remember, I taught from 1970 to 1990. How many years is that? 20 years. And we very seldom had a single handicap player. They were from 20 down to anything. So most of my students were non-athletic. Now, how do you teach somebody to be athletic? You were athletically endowed, so you you could hit the ball at a great distance. So then I would have to teach you how to hit the ball consistently in the fairway. Right. So you've already got you've already got distance, and now I'm going to work on direction. How about the guy that has neither? <laughs> <laughs> what I learned in golf was that I learned more teaching the hacker than I did teaching the professional, because teaching you was a was a, a, uh, it was a ball. It was easy. You know, getting a guy that tops it, shanks it, pulls it, pushes it. And now you got your work cut out for you because your hand-eye coordination sucks. <laughs> and, and, the long, and the longer the club is and the, the more speed the club has, the greater margin of error. Good. You're doing good. <laughs> so... I, I used to teach touring pros, and I said to them, the first thing I would say to them is, I don't know how much I can help you, but I won't hurt you. I'll give you something 
that I think you can handle and become consistent with. I may not make a lot of changes in your golf swing, but I'll teach you how to control the golf swing with more consistency that you have. Because the willingness to change creates progress. But you know how many people don't want to change to create progress? And if the change is not happening right away, they think that your theory is wrong. Right. It's, a, it's an instant gratification world. I mean, even more so than it ever used to be when you were, you know, teaching back at these Golf Digest schools. But but talking about these schools, talk about some of the, the instructors that you worked alongside and worked under you, uh, you know, from Jim Flick, Peter Costas. Well, do you know how many of them are in the Hall of Fame? How many? Four. Wow. Who? who? Five include. Five, including me. There was Jim Flick. There was uh, Eddie Marins. There was John Jacobs. Yep. Paul Runyon. Davis Love. Yeah, right, right. Wow. Now, yeah. all of those guys were in the Hall of Fame. There will never be a golf school in the history of golf that will have a, a, a group of instructors that makes the Hall of Fame like mine did. And really, was that, was that, was that, the, that, was really the, was that the first big golf school in the in the country or in the world or well there were other golf schools but they weren't very successful because the curriculum and the methodology was all the pros were not teaching the same thing one pro would say this and the other pro would say that and the, and the student would say well jim said this and joe said that and jack said this so now you got confusion so i told them golf is very simple you swing the golf club, your body does two things. It turns and it shifts. That's all it does. And when you putt, does the golf body turn and shift? Doesn't need to. Why? Because the swing is so short. No, no, because you're rolling the ball. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that too. <laughs> no, you're not putting the ball in the air, Steve. Yeah. Now when you put the ball in the air... And the swing gets greater, the body's going to turn in response to the swing and shift. So t teaching how to coordinate vertical, lateral, and rotary forces, they take place within two seconds. And those happen. They're fundamentally correct. They're indisputable. But to teach everybody to swing, turn, and shift and coordinate that, we used to have a step-in drill for people that didn't want to shift. So I would put my two feet close together. I would swing to the top, and I would step my left foot forward. I'd shift, and then I'd swing and find the ball correctly. Right. So I said, swing, step, swing. I said, repeat after me. Swing, get to the top, and step, start your downswing, and make contact. Do they take a practice swing? They do exactly what I said. You know what happened when the ball, went, they got the ball? <laughs> what happened? They didn't move. <laughs> yeah. In fact, they, some of them would step the other way. They didn't know their right foot from their left foot. They didn't know their left hand from their right hand. They didn't know slow from fast. They didn't know in from out, out from in. And this was what I had to put up for 20 years. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, these type of players, they're, they're definitely always the most challenging, but maybe also the most rewarding once you – get them to do what you want them to do. Now, uh, we're, we're going to dive into, uh, in a few minutes, kind of your your success as a player and being the leading money winner on the tour in 1954. But before we do that, as an instructor, you look at look at some of the greatest instructors over 
over the time uh, where you've taught. How important is the fact that you were able to perform the shots, being the the ex tour player, as compared to maybe some of these other teachers who have come along who aren't as skilled in playing tournament golf like you were? Well, I think you have to have the mental stability and the mental strength to be able to compete against 150 players every week. So you had to believe or think that you could play well enough to win or make a good check. And if you didn't have that mental strength and you had the physical strength, then you weren't able to compete and play well. And I I said this, I'm going to say it to you today, they're bigger and stronger today, but they're not smarter. (laughs) <laughs> the average player today, Steve, is six foot tall, weighs over 200 pounds. And my, your friend, Mr. Toski, weighed 120 pounds and beat all the best, biggest players in the world. What did I have that they didn't have? I had the, I had the physical strength called quick strength, deer life strength versus hippopotamus strength. And I had the determination and desire to succeed. And that started with concentration, composure, and confidence. Those are all really, really important. And that creates success. And that success creates money. And then you get rich. <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt, no doubt. But, but as an instructor, though, how important was that in your, in your level of success and walk the walk, not only talk the talk, but walk the walk, right, as an instructor? the first five years, I should have given everybody their money back (laughs) because I didn't know how to teach. I I thought I was a hell of a teacher because I was a good player. And now I had to learn how to become a good teacher. So I started breaking down my entire body. I started thinking of my hands first and then my feet because those are the only two things that abstraction to control action. I took my feet off the ground and my hands off the club. I might as well be an astronaut. <laughs> so I started I started studying my hand action, my arm action, my, my shoulder action, my hip action, my knee action, my leg action, my ankle, my heel, and my toe. And I started trying to feel each and every part. I would break it down and do and do it in slow motion. And as I did it in slow motion, I could understand the feeling of what was happening because I was taking more time to move my body. I wasn't trying to hit a driver 100 miles an hour. I, I just watched the driving contest in Las Vegas. You can't believe how violent their body is, and their legs are flying all over the place, and not one player ever finishes backswing short of parallel. They they were way below the parallel line. Now, how do you control a golf swing way past the parallel line and keep control of the club face, the square club face against the ball, and hit it around 400? I think the longest has been 430 yards. (laughs) One guy yesterday had eight golf balls and didn't put one in the grid. They call it to grid, which is yep. the fairway. Right. That's because speed kills. <laughs> Just remember that. Speed kills. And the faster you swing the club, and mass velocity times square is paramount, 
So if you can't control a mass and square the club face, which is only six inch, six uh, six ounces in weight, then you got a problem of being able to understand and feel what happens to the club at to and past the point of impact. There's no question about so that. So yeah. the first thing you learn to do that is with a putter. You learn to take the club, swing the club face back and through, and you start with a short putt, four feet, eight feet, ten feet, twelve feet, whatever. And it's the further back you get from the hole, what happens to your margin of error? What do you think these guys are trying to do with a, a driver? Some of them were using two or three drivers. <laughs> it's it's getting pretty- eight. It, it's pretty eight golf balls. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Now, along those lines, though, Bob, the 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 modern golf swing, maybe not the long drivers that you're talking about, but just you know the Brooks Kepkas, the Dustin Johnsons, versus a lot of the players that you've seen over time. Now, you're the length of time that you've had to observe and study players from Palmer to Nicholas. I mean, back even, you know, Ben Hogan, all the way through Tiger Woods, and now Dustin Johnson, Brooks Kepka. What, what, what sort of things are you seeing as, as the trends of the golf swing? And why, maybe why, I, I, we're, I don't know, I think about injuries a lot. And I think about there's a lot of players now that are injured. Were there a lot of players back then that got injured so much? No. Why? Because there was less stress in the body when you swung. Bobby Jones was one of the greatest players that ever lived. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. He was an amateur beating all the pros. Yep. Is that correct? Correct. His right leg was straight on his backswing, and and the club face was open. Now he was able to swing the club face back from the inside from there and square the club face and hit the ball dead straight. This is on camera. He's... I got I got the whole reel. Now, today, the biomechanical teaching is post up. Have you ever heard of that? I have. Posting into the left leg, yes. Well, what, is, what, is, what does posting up mean? Straighten out your leg? Straighten out your lead, you your lead leg. The, as you, yes, exactly. And turn your what? Turn your hips, turn your body. Yeah, there you go. What happens to the lateral force? Lateral force means lateral controls vertical and retains the angle. If you have no lateral force and just rotary force, what's going to happen to the golf club? You're going to dissipate the force and lose conservation of angular momentum. Now, what does a baseball player do when the pitcher throws the ball? What does he do? Steps into the butt. He steps towards the pitcher as he's trying to swing the bat. And then, and then, and then he steps toward the pitcher, and the coach wants him to hit the ball the left center field for a home run, not not dead center or right center, left center. So as he steps into the pitch, he's going to pull or curve the ball, correct? I would think so, yes. Well, how many fields did they have to hit to? Left, center, and right, Right, correct? so three fields. How wide is that area? It's, I don't know, 100 <laughs> yards wide. Okay. Have you ever seen a fairway that's 100 yards wide? Uh, a couple, but not very many. Not on championship and golf. They still, and they, yeah, but they still can't hit the fairway. <laughs> that's because their swings are so lousy. They have no sense of coordination or timing. And when people practice, believe me, 90% of the people who play golf practice for disaster. And your job is to teach them how to practice for success. So you better have... 
a, a system and a method that's simple and concise, and so it can become repetitive and consistent. And if you don't do that, then you're blowing smoke. <laughs> now, now the the yes. along those lines, though, Bob, the 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 simplicity of the golf swing, and probably the the greatest thing that I ever learned from you in my time, and still do it to this day, is is two words: push and pull. Where did you come up with that? And is that something that you thought throughout your life? No, uh, most <laughs> Steve, most of my hackers pull and push. <laughs> so where did the club face go when they pulled and pushed? It goes a lot of different directions. No, if you pulled in and pushed out, the club face would move outside the line of play, and 90% of all golfers slice. Let me ask you something. Did you ever get a red wagon for Christmas? I did. Where was the handle of the wagon? Oh, on the end of the... On the end of the wagon. No, which way was it? Was it in front or in back? <laughs> well, as it uh, as it functions properly, you should be pulling it. Oh, then you just found the answer. You you wouldn't push it from the opposite side because what would happen to the wagon? It would go all over it the place. It would go offline. Did you ever see a tug of war? Who yeah. wins? Who wins the tug of war? The group that can pull the fastest and the hardest, right? Exactly. <laughs> so the golf swing is then push pull. The left hand pushes back. The right hand pulls. Then the right hand pushes. Then the left hand pulls to keep the club face squared. And the left hand acts as a fulcrum to the right. The right hand works on and around about the left. Seymour Dunn, nineteen hundred and twenty-six. The right hand is subservient to the left. It acts on and around about the left hand. The left hand does not work on and around about the right hand. And you can prove this by doing this, Mr. Scott. Make a golf swing and leave go with your right hand just at the point of impact and finish the swing with your left hand. Then make a swing at the golf ball and leave go with your left hand at the point of impact and finish the swing with your right hand. Which hand are you going to understand that's more controlled at the point of impact? If I keep my left hand on, that's going to support the, the strike of the shot. And for a right-handed so player, the left hand is in the front. Absolutely. Well, the, Steve, the, the straight arm must control the bent arm. The left lever is straighter and the right lever is bent. What if you had both arms straight or both arms bent? Would you teach somebody to do that? No. Well, when you when you address the ball, is, is it true that your left arm is straighter than your right arm? It should be. Well, no, it, it has to be, not should be. <laughs> I'm giving a golf lesson now. The right arm has to be relaxed and closer to the body because the left hand is pulling, and the pulling force is greater than the pushing force. And who was the great player that said he wished he had two right hands at the point of impact? Mr. Ben Hogan. Well, how come everybody doesn't understand that? <laughs> if you push the club back to the ball and your left hand gives way, you've lost the angle and you've dissipated the force. And when you get to the ball, the club face has no speed. That's just physics. And everybody said, well, you must have studied physics. I said, I don't even know how to spell the word. <laughs> but I was teaching physics <laughs> because I understood that the golf swing is nothing but a circle. It geometrically, it's a circle that's oblique in nature. That well, you know what oblique means? It means somewhere it. between vertical, somewhere between straight up and flat. Yeah. 
And if you were totally flat, what would your color face look like? Shut. Yeah. Correct? Correct. Somewhere between that is oblique. Seymour Dunn taught that in 1926 and should have been the first player teacher to be inducted in the Hall of Fame. And when I was inducted in the Hall of Fame, I said to the audience, I don't know why Seymour Dunn has not been elected to the Hall of Fame before me. His book became my Bible called The Fundamentals of Golf. This man was strong. He was a hell of a player, came from a great golfing family. That became my Bible in teaching. And I used to carry it around with me all the time. All right, Bob, we're going to cut you off right there to conclude part one of a multi-part series from the legendary coach Bob Toskey. Stay tuned in future episodes. Find out how he became the leading money winner on tour in 1954 to coaching the meteoric rise of Bertie Kim and how she won the United States Women's Open Championship at Cherry Hills. Also, he'll talk about his involvement in the beginnings of the senior tour back in 1979. You're not going to want to miss these future episodes of the Silver Club Podcast to kick off this new decade here in 2020. Thanks for listening to this Silver Club Podcast, and we'll catch you real soon.